Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with David White, author of Oil Money, Middle East Petrodollars and the Transformation of U.S. Empire, 1967 through 1988. David White is visiting assistant professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. We spoke to David about how the sheer number of Arab and Iranian petrodollars in the 1970s and 80s inspired the interest and even the awe of many Americans. What new and interesting information he uncovered from declassified governmental records and popular Arab and Iranian media. And the radical proposal that then White House Chief of Staff Donald Rumsfeld made in 1974 for a truly unique collaboration between the United States and the oil exporting countries of the Middle East. Hello, David. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Want to give you a hearty congratulations on your new book, Oil Money, Middle East Petrodollars and the Transformation of U.S. Empire, 1967 to 1988. I was thinking of your book actually uh, just a couple months ago because I saw that Donald Rumsfeld had just passed away back in June. And he actually is, 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 is featured in the beginning of your book. Tell us the story uh, that's featured in the beginning of your book. Sure. Yeah. I mean, many of the people in this book, or at least some of them are still alive or are recently passed, like Donald Rumsfeld. And I should just foreground that petrodollars, what I mean by, or what is meant by petrodollars is the wealth that is generated, the revenues that is generated from the sale of oil. So the book is looking at what do countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, do when they start getting a lot more money in the 1970s when the price of oil skyrockets and how does the united states respond to that and donald rumsfeld in 1974 was chief of staff uh, for president gerald ford and he proposed to the national security council his idea of how the united states could try to steer the flow of these petrodollars in the arab world in a way that would be beneficial to the United States. And what he came up with was to propose or offer to the Arab countries the opportunity to spend tens of billions of their petrodollars on a joint US-Arab space program to develop a space shuttle that would be jointly manned by American and Arab astronauts. And you have to remember that this is in the 1970s, a billion dollars is a lot of money back then. Uh, but Rumsfeld, in, in the memo where he proposes this to the NSC, uh, he's like, well, they're just trying to find some use for this money. They have so much money coming in that they're just looking for ways to spend it. And Rumsfeld was convinced that this joint project would not just get money back into the United States, but that it would have all these sort of beneficial side effects in US-Arab relations, that this would steer Arab energies in ways that would get them closer to the United States rather than being opponents of the United States. Uh, through this cooperation in launching a space program, you would get person-to-person -person ties. Governments would be able to sort of champion the idea of national pride by going into space rather than confronting Israel. 
Um, he thought that it would modernize Arab societies and he assumed, and he states this in the document, he argued that it would be much harder to make reactionaries of a educated technician than it would be of a, as he put it, a quote unquote camel herder. And so he had all these assumptions of how modernization by using the money, it would bring a lot of money back into the US economy, into the US government, but it would also make the Arab world a better, more stable partner for the United States. Now this project never got taken up by anyone. Uh, as far as I can tell, Rumsfeld was the only one who was excited about this idea. But in many ways it is in keeping with the spirit of many Americans, both in government and in business of what they wanted to see the Arab world as well as Iran do with their petrodollars. They wanted to find joint projects that would bring these petrodollars back into the American economy and have the Arab world in Iran use that money for projects that the United States or Americans assumed would be beneficial for American political and economic interests. Fascinating. It's, it's an amazing story and it illustrates so well uh, the, the central premise of your book. And you were mentioning petrodollars. I'm looking in your book here, you're saying that the, the projected air balance of payment surplus just in 1974 alone was $50 billion, uh, near, nearly $200 million a day uh, was going over to uh, the Middle East and North African uh, countries. So seriously, a lot of money that, that was very dazzling to the West. So tell us in more depth, how did petrodollars transform Middle East US relations during this time? Yeah, so what I argue in the book is that petrodollars, the rise in wealth in the Arab world in Iran, basically causes a transformation or shift in how US power operates in the Middle East and the role of the Middle East in US empire globally. And what I mean by that is before the 1970s, say the, the 1950s, 1960s, the primary purpose of the Middle East as far as the United States was concerned was providing cheap oil uh, for the global capitalist economic system. And in 1973, 1974, oil prices quadruple uh, and the Middle East is no longer serving that purpose. All of a sudden they are providing oil, but it's very expensive oil. And so instead you see this shift where the Middle East is now key allies in the, of the United States in the Middle East, particularly Saudi Arabia and Iran under the Shah uh, before the revolution. Those two countries become key to the United States, not by providing cheap oil, but by using their petrodollars in ways that both the United States and their Middle East allies think will be beneficial to each other. So for example, Saudi Arabia becomes a major lender to the US government, a major investor and depositor to Western financial institutions, US banks. And in 1974, the uh, Arab countries are the single largest source of new international bank deposits. So they're critical for keeping global liquidity, for keeping global capitalism running. Uh, this is something that the Middle East had not 
served before, but now all of a sudden they're key to the international financial system, not just international oil supply. Uh, and so there's a lot of examples where the use of these petrodollars becomes key to different US businesses or to the US government. And they're often these very grand, uh, you know, the largest of the largest. So you have the world's biggest engineering project get underway building a giant industrial city in Saudi Arabia in Jubail. Uh, you have just one record after another broken by first Iran and then Saudi Arabia for arms purchases for some of the most advanced weapons that the United States has just developed, things like AWACS, uh, spy planes. And you also have the Saudis using their petrodollars to fund the largest ever CIA operation, which was arming the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviets in the 1980s. The Saudi government matched dollar for dollar whatever the United States government would give to the Mujahideen. Uh, and they gave even more in sort of private donations from Saudi royals and wealthy citizens. And so in a variety of different ways for both global capitalism, for fighting the Soviet Union and its allies in the Cold War. Middle East allies with lots of petrodollars become a key source of financing for these US projects. Interesting, interesting. Tell us how you got interested in this topic and, and what type of research you did. Sure, so initially, I knew I wanted to look at the period of the 1970s in US Middle East relations, but I wasn't entirely sure where to go beyond that. I was interested in the 1970s, both because there was clearly so many important changes going on in the relationships between the United States and the Middle East. And there was also a lot of archives opening up. So new records to look at. But I wasn't sure where to, to go there. I wasn't sh entirely sure how to explain many of the shifts or changes that were happening. And as I started to do more research, one of the things that I noticed was there seemed to be a lack of study on, uh, on how economic changes were impacting the US Middle East relationship. Not to say that there hadn't been any work, but that much of the more recent scholarship was focused on diplomacy uh, of a traditional nature. And I was curious to see more about how economic factors, how groups that sometimes get left out of the story, like the US Treasury Department, what was their role in many of these shifts? And as I started digging into the archives, what I found is that it wasn't just the Treasury Department. If you look at the State Department, if you look at the NSC in the United States, uh, or if you're looking at the IMF, the World Bank, or if you're looking at the governments in the Middle East, everyone was very concerned about how these petrodollars were going to get used. Uh, you could see it in the public media at the time as well, both uh, in the uh, Arab and Iranian presses and the American presses uh, in films and television series. This was a, a major, not just economic phenomenon or event, uh, the rise of petrodollars to the Middle East, but it was also really important 
in geopolitics and it was very important in popular culture in both the West and in the Middle East of how each other, each society was understanding each other or coming to uh, think of each other as you have this emerging globalization that is making these two regions far more interdependent, far more in contact. And so I became very interested in exploring this uh, on both the economic, geopolitical, and cultural level. And one of the things that I particularly liked about this topic uh, as well is that it lent itself to looking at uh, Arab and Iranian uh, media sources so that you know, many of the archives, uh, official archives, governmental archives for the Middle East are not open to scholars, but the public media, the newspapers, the speeches, the films, those things are available. And so in that way, I could incorporate Arab and Iranian perspectives and voices into this history. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I saw that your research tapped into these new sources, popular Arab, Iranian, and U.S. media, but also declassified governmental records. What were some of the highlights of your research with these new sources? Well, probably the most exciting document, uh, official record that I found was when I stumbled upon the Rumsfeld memo proposing the Arab space program. Yeah. I had a very, very large smile on my face at the Ford Presidential Library when I came across that one. Uh, but another uh, set of uh, records that I was really excited to find actually turned out to be political cartoons in the various Arab presses. And some of the ones from Saudi Arabia or from Saudi uh, newspapers were particularly fascinating to me and kind of captured both the sense of excitement, but also anxiety that much of the Arab world felt about their newfound wealth. Uh, and to give you an example of each, uh, in both of these come from late 1978, early 1979. So right about the time that the Iranian revolution is occurring and oil prices are going even higher. So the Saudis are just getting even more money than uh, e even just a few years earlier after the first shock in 73, 74. In 78, 79, prices are even doubling or more over that. So just unprecedented amounts of money for the Saudis. And in one Saudi newspaper, uh, there is a, a cartoon where there's two Saudis in, men in very traditional dress. And they're looking at another man who is dressed in like very stereotypical disco garb. And he's standing next to a Rolls Royce. And the two Saudis who are traditionally dressed, one is saying to the other, truly believe me, that guy, the guy in the disco outfit, he is a Saudi citizen. He is, he's a management specialist of major national companies. And that kind of spoke to this idea of like, are the Saudis, are the Saudi people and especially the younger generation, are they being changed by all these Western influences? And it, there's kind of a hint of a of fear of maybe they're being corrupted or maybe they're becoming something we don't recognize. 
uh, that they're, they're not really Saudi or we don't recognize them as Saudi anymore. And so that kind of spoke to the, the cultural anxiety, which I think is notable in the context of the Iranian revolution where many people in Iran at that moment are very angry about the sense that petrodollars are being used to kind of co-opt or buy out their culture or take away their national sovereignty. Uh, but then there's another cartoon just a couple months later in a different Saudi paper uh, that depicts two families. And one is a Saudi family and one is a British family. And the Saudi family, there's a husband, a wife who is pregnant, and the wife is holding a baby. And then they have like seven more kids behind them. So they have a very large family. And then the British family is looking very dour and there's just kind of this sad looking husband and wife and a sad little kid. They only have one kid. And the Saudi husband says to his wife rather cheekily, uh, and I'm quoting here, he says, they have an energy problem. Uh, and so they're making this you know, reproductive pun that, uh, you know, the West they have an energy problem. They don't have energy. They don't have oil. Their economy is stagnating. And so they're not producing anymore. And so they just have one little kid. Whereas the Saudis, you know, they have all, all this energy. They have the oil. They have the money. And so they're growing. Uh, they're growing their family. They're growing their country. And that kind of shows the, the sort of pride and sense of optimism for many Saudis that they're getting all this unprecedented wealth. They can use this to maybe even, you know, surpass the West. So there's this interesting dichotomy there of both fear and hope from uh, petrodollars. What I, I title one chapter, uh, uh, visions of petrodollar promise and peril. Uh, and you see this also in the, the United States, both big hopes that petrodollars can be used to do great things for both the United States and the Arab world, but also many Americans and other Westerners voicing great fear that maybe the Arabs or Iranians will use this money to harm American interests or values. So it's interesting that both sides kind of mirror this dichotomy. Wow, thanks for sharing those stories. Yeah, this is the history that I love of just seeing different cultural perspectives on the same type of issue. So seeing what the Americans' reaction as well as the Saudi and Iranians' reaction um, and how different they are. And also, as you were saying, how they mirror one another. But particularly, you know, fear of change. I, I can't even imagine the amount, that, the, again, the amount of money that we're talking about here in just a very, very short period of time and how that can create serious conflicts within a society that's not used to such radical change. And you were, th this history of yours is, is uh, you know, on the cutting edge of when this, when petrodollars suddenly become, you know, a, a really big thing. And it goes up to just about the uh, beginning of the end of the Cold War. What are some of the historical ramifications of this time period that you see in the news today when you're looking at headlines or looking at the region? That's a great question. And I think there's two ways I look at it. One is the legacies of this period in the 70s and 80s that we can see carrying forward or impacting to the present. And I kind of outlined in the conclusion how many of the issues that the world faces, that both the United States and the Middle East and the larger world faces, after 1988, many of them stem from these new structures that get created 
uh, in a period of high petrodollar wealth because oil revenues drop significantly in the late 80s. And so the petrodollars kind of dry up in many ways, but many of the structures carry forward. And those range from the Mujahideen and individuals like Osama bin Laden, who in many ways got their training and experience in Afghanistan because of petrodollars, they're still around. And they, uh, Osama bin Laden talks quite a bit in his speeches about how he's angry about how the Saudis are using their wealth in ways that are, in his view, corrupting Arab culture, uh, that they have banks that use interest, that he believes, you know, this is against Islamic law. And so many of the sort of unexpected or inadvertent outcomes of the use of petrodollars. This was not something that the, the Saudi government or the US government wanted or anticipated, but it helped to contribute to the anger of individuals uh, like Osama bin Laden uh, and is one of the things that spurs uh, Islam, uh, is Islamist opposition to the United States in, in the Middle East and sometimes in very violent forms. Uh, but it also is something that, and we see that also uh, particularly in the Iranian revolution as well. And so the poor relationship between the United States and Iran since 1979 is in many ways rooted in petrodollar legacies, but also alliances particularly between say the Saudi government and the United States have persisted in large degree because of the petrodollar ties that were forged in the 1970s, 1980s. Uh, there were a lot of different issues that brought the United States and Saudi Arabia into conflict, whether it was the Arab-Israeli conflict, whether it was oil prices. Uh, there were a lot of things where they disagreed fiercely and potentially you could have had the Saudi-US alliance rupture uh, during this period, I argue. But petrodollar projects was one of the ways that helped keep that alliance together and going through the 70s and 80s up to the present. Uh, so in many ways, we see the legacies uh, of this period carrying forward to the present. But we can also see many analogies uh, between things that are happening in the present uh, and the period of the 70s. And so in recent years, we've had ups and downs in oil prices, but some of them are, are big ups, uh, big rises in oil prices where you have a lot more petrodollars once again going to countries like Saudi Arabia and the Saudis once again purchasing uh, some of the largest amounts of arms in history from the United States. So you can see uh, a lot of analogies uh, between what was happening in recent years and the slightly more distant past of the 1970s and 1980s. Excellent, excellent. That all makes sense. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, you know, again, this is the tip of the iceberg for what's in your book, but you've shared some very fascinating stories and fascinating history of this time period. So again, the book we're discussing, David White's new book, Oil Money, Middle East, Petrodollars, and the Transformation of U.S. Empire, 1967 to 1988. Thank you so much, David, for, for joining us and discussing your new book. Thank you. Take care.
That was David White, author of Oil Money, Middle East Petrodollars and the Transformation of U.S. Empire, 1967 through 1988. If you'd like to read his new book, visit our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD to save 30%. If you live in the U.K., use the discount code CSANNOUNCE and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.